Turning back again, please, to the Word of God as we find it in the book of Matthew, the 20th chapter. We'll read again for context, reminder, verse 15 and verse 16. Matthew 20. Fifteen and sixteen. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. And today we're looking at the topic from Matthew 20, verse 1 to 16, of grace, it doesn't add up. Grace, it doesn't add up. And with the Word of God before us, let's bow together, please, in a further word of prayer. Gracious Lord, again we look to Thee for Thy presence and for Thy power coming through Thy Word. It is the work of the Spirit, Thy Holy Spirit, to take the Word and to make application of it onto our hearts. That was given and that was said through the foolishness of preaching that many should believe. We pray that in our day and generation that I will cause many to believe. It's what we need, a change in the circumstances spiritually of our community, a desire after God that it doesn't have residing within it right now, a change in perspective. And we pray that those of Thy people who are laboring on, who are not counting the cost, who have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, who are going out, meeting people, speaking to them about the Savior, inviting them to church services, bringing the word of the gospel their way. We pray, Lord, that thou wilt reward this and even where we can intensify it and see thy name magnified in a day when thy cause by many is vilified. Come and answer prayer. Give power, we ask. And may this subject of thy grace, maybe even coming from a slightly different angular perspective, may it reach into our hearts today And may we be thoroughly thankful for the grace of God that has brought salvation to hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some of you may be able to look back and remember the new maths that was introduced in schools quite a number of years ago now. It was a dramatic and a brief change to the way in which maths was taught in schools, and they brought it in from the 1960s and onwards. 
They introduced it initially in the United States of America. It spread across a lot of the Western world, and it was shortly after the Sputnik crisis. They brought it in, implemented it to boost, as they said, education and mathematical skill within the population so that they could beat back and challenge and answer the threat from the Soviet engineers who were reputedly highly skilled mathematicians. So the new maths was basically an experimental form of arithmetic. It was extremely confusing, especially for parents, and they're laboring away, trying to help their children with their new, radically different homework. In the new maths, adding, subtracting, multiplying did not work in the usual way. That's because the new maths was involved with something called base theory. Take this example of how it works. In base 10, and that's the base that we all use all the time, normal or traditional or old maths, whatever way we want to refer to that, 2 plus 2 equals 4. No big uh, prizes for getting the answer right there, but... In the new maths, using base 3, 2 plus 2 equals 11. Now, I'm not going to tell you today and take time to tell you why it equals 11, principally because I don't understand it myself. However, you can readily, even from that one example, readily understand why it was so confusing. You see, if you change the context, if you alter the base, the numbers will mean entirely new and different things. And unsurprisingly, this new maths became the butt of many jokes. Tom Layer wrote a satirical song called New Math that centered around the process of subtracting 173 from 342 in decimal and octum, and the final sentence from his introductory remarks to a song pretty much sums up the general opinion to the new maths back then in the new approach, as you know. The important thing is to understand what you're doing rather than get to the right answer. An excerpt. So you've got 13 tens, and you take away seven, and that leaves five, well, six actually, but the idea is the important thing. And he concludes it's so simple, so very simple, that only a child can do it. I mention this because there's a sense in which at times the Christian biblical faith appears a little like the new maths. There are times when what God does does not seem to add up in our estimation. Philip Yancey points this out in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, and let's have some biblical examples of that. We catch a little side of it. In Matthew 18, 12 to 14, Jesus' parable of the shepherd, who left the flock of ninety-nine, and he headed out into the darkness to search for one lost lamb. Yancey says, this is a noble deed, but reflect for a moment on the underlying arithmetic. 
Jesus says the shepherd left the 99 sheep in the wilderness, which presumably means they were vulnerable to rustlers, wolves, or to a feral desire to bolt free. How would the shepherd feel if he returned with the one lost lamb slung across his shoulders, only to find 23 others now missing? And I know there's answers for that, but it doesn't really on the surface make mathematical sense. There's another scene in John's Gospel where a woman named Mary took ultra-expensive perfume. And I know, ladies, you'll probably be expecting in your Christmas sack this year new perfume, not to put pressure on anybody, but um, it'll be perfume that nobody will get in their sack this year because it's the kind of perfume that nobody in the building today has ever owned in their lifetime. For the perfume we talk about here in John 12, 1 to 5, was worth an entire year's wages, and she poured it all out on Jesus' Even the betrayer Judas sitting there watching on, quick as a flash, was on to this one, and he didn't think it added up at all. Surely Mary could have used just a little, an ounce perhaps, on the feet of Jesus, and then gone out and sold the rest and helped the poor in that community. Why waste an entire jar when an ounce would have done the job? Mark's gospel contains another example of this. Maths at but first sight doesn't quite add up. After watching a widow drop two little coins into the temple collection plate, our Lord seems to minimize the larger financial gifts brought along by more wealthy worshipers, and He declares, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. What kind of a base was Jesus working off to come up with that kind of mathematical deduction? How could two little coins equal more than a handful of huge gold pieces? To put it in modern terms, how could two pennies equal two fistful of brand new 100-pound notes? But I know we're talking percentages there. Our text today adds to these, on the surface, confusing calculations with the final example of what Yancey refers to as the atrocious mathematics of the gospel. But before we sit down and settle into the maths class on this one, let's take a little time in the history desk. What exactly happened here in this incident? Well, we have the story like this at sunrise. A farmer goes into the place in the town where he knows day laborers are going to be gathered together hoping somebody will come pick them up and put them to work. And so he hired some of them to pick grapes in his vineyard that day. It was extremely hot, very exhausting work. In Palestine in the harvest season, maybe the temperature there is going right up over 40 degrees Celsius. Additionally, those those days in the grape harvest, they would have been a very hectic and demanding time. Often there's only a small window of time in which the fruit of the vine is going to be ripe, and therefore you need to pick it before the bad weather sets in. And after that time, the crop isn't going to be worth picking, so the job had to be done rapidly. 
maybe in the haste to get the job done that day. At the third hour, nine o'clock in the morning, the farmer went out and he hired extra workers. He did the same at noon. He did the same at three o'clock in the afternoon, eventually at five o'clock to get the harvest pushed through on the home stretch. He went and he hired some more. Just one hour later, 6 p.m., or the twelfth hour, that's quitting time, that was signaled, and everybody is queuing up for their pay that day. And then, at that point, these controversial mathematics, they come to the fore. Those who were hired last are brought to the head of the queue. Now, that fact must have made all of the rest of the workers curious, because usually pay is doled out on a first-come, first-served basis, and you can guarantee they're watching really closely as to what is happening here, and the paymaster, he begins to count out the payroll. And even more closely, when they saw that the man who only worked an hour, these guys have only just turned up, but they're paid a penny, a denarius which would have been a good wage back then. In fact, that was the same daily wage they would pay to a Roman soldier, and that is much more than a common laborer could ever have expected to earn for an entire day's work, but they're given that. But already, the maths isn't adding up here. But the other laborers aren't minding too much just yet. They must have been amazed at the farmer's amazing generosity. One hour, and you get a day's wage for that, and they're rubbing their hands. If these men only worked an hour, got an entire denarius, imagine how much we're going to be taking home today. But when they got to the length of the paymaster, their salary was exactly the same as the other workers, only one denarius. Not fair. What kind of accounting is this? This doesn't add up. After all, we've been sweating and sleeving at top speed under that burning sun all day, and this is what we get. The same as people who worked an hour. Now, if normal maths had been applied to this situation, the men there from the start should have been receiving, as they might have calculated, 12 denarii, because 12 times 1 is 12. And Yancey writes, the boss's action contradicted everything known about employee motivation and fair compensation. It was atrocious economics, plain and simple. But our Lord is telling the parable for a reason. What is his reason? This mathematically challenged landowner, what is our Lord's business in telling us about him? To begin to answer the question, we must first understand that if we try to work out Jesus' story on the basis of mathematics, we're going to miss the point entirely. Our Lord's parable is not supposed to make economic sense. It is not designed to be a pay scale for workers or counsel for employers. It is frankly not supposed to add up in this story. Our Lord is giving a quite wonderful illustration about grace. And grace cannot be calculated like a day's wages. 
We're looking at four basic lessons. The first, the essence of the kingdom of heaven, the essence of the kingdom of heaven. And at the heart of the kingdom of heaven, we have this word, grace. It is characterized by grace. The first thing we note here is what Jesus tells us the parable is about. And he begins the words, you'll notice here, he begins with the words of Matthew 20 and verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like. So it's not good business practice. It's not employment legislation. It is designed to teach us about God's kingdom and how people enter into him and thrive in the kingdom. The first thing we note, there is a search here. God is seeking people for the kingdom. So the householder, he goes into the marketplace, and he's looking for workers, and he's in there on five occasions on this particular day, early in the morning, then at the third and the sixth and the ninth, finally at the eleventh hours. And maybe some of you are already saying, well, five? Isn't that the number of grace in the Bible? It is. But the fact of the matter is, not only does God seek, but He continues to seek for the inhabitants of His kingdom. God has sought people since creation, and He continues to seek them today. And be sure of this, when God sets His eternal affection on any one of us, He pursues us diligently, does not ever lose focus. He has pursued us in our early years, and if He didn't respond and kick back against the overtures of His grace, He continues to seek us in teenage years, adult years, in our twilight years. Miss Crosby, the blind hymn writer, put it wonderfully well, out in the desert, seeking, seeking. Sinner, tis Jesus, seeking for thee, tenderly calling, calling, calling hither thy lost one. Oh, come unto me. Still he is waiting, waiting, waiting. Oh, what compassion beams in that eye. Hear him repeating, gently, gently, come to the Savior. Oh, why wilt thou die? This, of course, is not some kind of a frustrated search from a weak God, hoping, hoping, and often hoping against hope that somebody, somewhere, at some time, will somehow respond to the overtures of His mercy. Not at all. He seeks according to purpose. He does so with patience. He does it with persistence and with power that is irresistible. So there's a search, and that's pictured here. Given the fact that entrance into the kingdom of God is entirely by grace, those who are unable to respond to the gospel do not, not one of them, do not get paid according to their merit. Let me think with you of some accounting phrases that we have in Romans 3 and 23 and Romans 6 and 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But the gospel is good news because right at its heart, its central message is God dispenses 
gifts, not wages. Therefore, Romans 6 and 23 continues to say, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's put it like this. God's base from which He works is grace. His actions are dictated not by maths or percentages, but by His great unconditional love. And the love of God is the key to understanding these atrocious mathematics of the gospel. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19, in sending Jesus to the cross to die for our sins, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. They should have got that. That is what they deserved. For their trespasses to be given to them, put on their shoulders, you bear the burden, you pay the penalty. That's what should have happened. But he didn't do it. God was in Christ. To use the psalmist's words, in Psalm 103, the verse 10 and 11, he hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. In a film that was called The Last Emperor, the young child appointed to be the last emperor of China lives a quite magical life of luxury and has a thousand servants at his command. And there's a scene where his brother asks him, what happens when you do wrong? And the boy emperor replied, when I do wrong, somebody else is punished. And to demonstrate that, he broke a jar, and to pay for that crime, one of the servants was beaten. While the glorious news of the gospel is that our Lord Jesus Christ has reversed that pattern. When the servants erred, the king was punished. Jesus was beaten, tortured, crucified as payment for our sins. If God counted our sins against us, if He paid according to our wages what we deserve, we would not only be in trouble, we'd be in hell. And that's why we cry with Robert Robinson, O to Greece, how great a debtor daily. I'm constrained to be. But not only search or satisfaction made by Christ here, there is security. We learn here that all who accept God's invitation of grace will receive eternal life in heaven. All the workers, no matter what time of day it was that they responded to the cry for coming to the vineyard, help, no matter what time they came, all received their reward. Essentially, essentially, it does not matter when you turn to the Savior. Of course, we're meant to flee to Him now. But the same wonderful gift of salvation will be given to all who come to Him. He will not cast one away. In John 6 and 37, what do we read? 
all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast doubt. In Acts 2 and 21, it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Romans 10 verse 9 through 13, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Did you catch something in the parable? Those men who worked only for an hour, end of the day, waited in the marketplace looking for work all day long. They could have given up. They could have gone home. Nobody wants us today. It's a waste of time. Let's get away from here. But they stayed. They were willing to work. If only for an hour. They could have concluded that day were worthless. But they didn't. They waited in hope. Their hope was rewarded. Grace came looking for them and called them into the harvest field. And you might think today, I'm a sinner. There's too much water under the bridge. I've squandered too many opportunities in the past to get right with God. There's too much sin in my life for a Savior to pardon. Do not turn away. If the Savior by His Holy Spirit is pursuing you, inviting you to be part of His kingdom, there is hope for you to find forgiveness, to know eternal life. It is still not too late because we are still in the day of grace. But receive His offer today because today is the accepted time and today is the day of salvation. Listen to that testimony of Robert Murray McShee and he told it in the form of a hymn. We have sung it today. I once was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger, nor felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah said, can you, was nothing to me. When free grace awoke me by light from on high, then legal fear shook me. I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. Jehovah said, can you, my Savior must be. The essence of the kingdom of heaven is characterized by grace. You'll not get in there by human effort, by your works. Second thought, not only the essence of the kingdom, the entrance into the kingdom of heaven, the entrance into the kingdom of heaven, there is a great benefit in coming early. Many will look at the parable here in Matthew 20, and they'll conclude that, ah, music to my ears. I can wait, keep delaying and postponing, keep doing other stuff until the last minute, and then I'll turn and accept Christ. We can receive the benefit without having to work at discipleship. Why not get paid 60 pounds an hour rather than maybe 5 pounds an hour? Why not wait to follow Jesus? After all, if the last are going to be first and the first last, why not try to be the last so that we can be the first into heaven? There's so much I'd like to do before I want to commit myself to this salvation thing. People do think like that. 
What makes us think that living without God, without Christ, is better than enjoying the fellowship of His presence day by day? People seem to think they can sow their wild oats while they can, almost feel cheated if they don't get to indulge in as much sin as some other people. We've missed out on that, they conclude. Why don't we rather say, I mustn't delay in running to the Savior. I don't want to miss a single day or a single moment. I want to live in His grace, bask in His love, be protected by His hand. I think as many do of the dying thief. At Calvary, he got saved. And when you think of it, he ran right up close to the wire. Saved by the skin of his teeth, people have said. Saved with his dying breath, that's undoubted. He was one man who got into the kingdom at the eleventh hour. Now, that's not encouragement for you or I to postpone and delay this vital issue to our deathbed. Number one, we may not be granted a deathbed, as we call it. Number two, on our deathbed, we may not be in possession of our faculties to understand our right hand from our left hand. It should always be remembered that this dying thief is the one and only case of deathbed conversion that is recorded in all of the Bible. This one was saved at the last that none might despair, but only one was saved in these circumstances that none might presume. But praise God, by the Lord's grace and mercy, he did get in. He pleaded in Luke 23, 42, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. To him Jesus responded, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. And it's true that those who do come late will enjoy the kingdom of heaven, just like those who have come early. But those who come early have the blessing of enjoying God's grace for a longer period of time. What they do is they can fill their diary with days of discipleship. They can do something for Christ. They will have less regret, less sorrow as they look back and scan their lives. Talk to any person who has been a true follower of Jesus Christ for a number of years, and none of them will tell you, you know what? I wish I'd waited a bit longer before I trusted in Christ. Instead, they'll say, I wish I'd come sooner. I should have. Years ago, because they realize by and by, when I look on his face, I'll wish I had given him more. The essence of the kingdom of heaven, characterized by grace. The entrance into the kingdom of heaven, there is great benefit in coming early. The emphasis in the kingdom of heaven. It reminds us God cares for people. 
more than he does things. We often look at the parable here in the wrong way. And we see the vineyard owner and was this a fair deal? Is the thought. Is he not acting unjustly? I mean, by giving the penny to the ones who would labor an hour, but no more to those who would work all day, and we're tempted to imagine when we see the complaint here in verse 11 and verse 12 that that complaint seems to have a ring of legitimacy to it. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour. And thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. Injustice! The truth is, there is no injustice here at all. Three times over down the passage, we are reminded that he did right, that he did no wrong. The owner, beginning of the day, agreed a contract with the first workers. The householder had been just with those day-long workers, just as he had been with the hour-long workers. And whatever funds he had were his. And he could do with his money exactly as he chose to do. They, every one of them, agreed to the contract. They agreed at the time when it was given. It was fair, it was just, it was something they wanted to sign up for, and they signed up for it. And that doesn't change, even if others received a different wage. You get that, do you not, in professional sport? An athlete comes in, demands a long-term contract for security going into the future. But maybe three years into a six-year contract, he looks around and he's comparing what he's getting with what others, newbies, into the club, they are being paid and they're getting more than him. And he feels the management is no longer respecting him. And so he looks for a better contract. But is the club being unfair? Of course not. The club directors, the player, his age and all of that, they negotiated at the beginning a good and a fair contract that he was happy to sign, and the owner is living by his end of the deal. But let's not look at the one who's criticizing and complaining right here. Focus rather on the mercy that was extended to those who worked less time. As I understand it, a denarius was that day's wage for the soldier, as we've mentioned. The men who worked as day laborers, they lived hand to mouth, day to day. They turned up in the marketplace, advertising the fact that they're willing to work that day. If they didn't get any work, then their families are going to go hungry that night. Certainly those men at the end didn't work as long. They did receive a denarius, though they didn't deserve that full amount. But the owner, picture it from his eyes, the owner aware of the needs of all of the men, all of the laborers, right through the day, determined, I will meet their need. These late workers, I'll meet their need without regard for what their obligation was. He would have been just in negotiating a smaller amount of money. But he knew these are men with families, and instead of me acting with justice here, I will act with mercy. Do you really want God to act towards you with 
justice? Do you want God only to give people, us ourselves included, what we deserve? Of course we don't. We depend on God's mercy. We need His grace. It's vital to our salvation, vital to our life. And that's the main message coming through the story here. We are recipients of mercy. Justice dictated, I deserve the fiery, unrelenting, everlasting judgment of God, but while justice demanded that, mercy intervened, interposed, saved me. Therefore, I can rejoice today, as I will through all eternity, a debtor to mercy alone. Of covenant mercy I sing, nor fear with thy righteousness on my person and offerings to bring. The essence of the kingdom of heaven, characterized by grace, the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Yes, there is great benefit in coming early. The emphasis in the kingdom of heaven, God cares for people, gives them grace. The final thought, the enjoyment of the kingdom of heaven. The enjoyment of the kingdom of heaven. And here's the lesson. When we focus on what others get, as the fellows who worked all day began to do with those who came at the end, when we focus on what others get, we can't enjoy what we have been given. The most practical lesson for you and I to notice here, it appears in the attitude of the people who were hired first. Those men, beginning of the day, didn't feel cheated at all. This is a good deal. You can check it out in Matthew 20, verse 1 and 2. The indications are there. They were happy with that arrangement. In fact, they would have felt themselves very fortunate. We've got a job. We've got employment. We've got income for this day. And they look forward to bringing home the day's wages to their family that will keep us going. Now, if they had been paid first at the top of the queue here, instead of the last man, they wouldn't have grumbled at all. They'd have walked off into town, into their homes, and maybe the next day they'd have met one of the eleventh hour men. And then they'd have worked out, well, that was hardly fair. There's a familiar Jewish fable that drives home the point of this parable. It concerns a farmer who lived in Poland. For generations before him, his family had been very poor. One night he was awakened by an angel who said, you find favor in the eyes of your maker. He wants to do for you what he did for your ancestor Abraham. He wants to bless you. Therefore, make any three requests you want regarding the will of God. He'll be pleased to give each of those requests to you. There's only one condition. Your neighbor will get a double portion of everything that's given to you. The farmer was amazed by that revelation in this fable, and he woke up to tell his wife all about it, and she said, well, let's put it to the test. And so they prayed, oh, blessed God, if we could just have a herd of a thousand cattle, that would enable us to break out of the cycle of poverty that our family has lived in for generations. That would be wonderful. No sooner had they asked for that than they heard the sound of animals outside. 
And all around the house, 1,000 magnificent animals. During the next two days, the farmer's feet hardly touched the ground. He divided his time between praising God for such great generosity and beginning to make practical provisions for the newly acquired affluence that had been given to him. On the third afternoon, he's up on a hill behind his house trying to decide, where am I going to build this new barn? When he looked across at his neighbor's feet, and he caught sight standing in the green hillside there of 2,000 cattle. And for the first time since the angel appeared, the joy within him just evaporated, a scowl of envy took over his countenance, and he went home that evening in a foul mood, and he wouldn't take supper, and he went to bed in a total rage. He couldn't fall asleep because every time he closed his eyes, he just saw those 2,000 cows that his neighbor had deep in the night, he remembered, well, the angel said three things, three wishes. And so he shifted away from the neighbor again and back to his own situation. The old joy flooded in again, and he thought, what do I really want? And he realized that in addition to material security that he now had, that he'd always wanted descendants to carry his name into the future. So he prayed a second time, gracious God, if it please, he give me a child that I might have descendants. And shortly after, didn't he find out his wife was expecting? The next months are spent on unbroken joy. The farmer, he's working through all of his new wealth, and he's looking forward to this great privilege of becoming a parent. And on the night his first child was born, he was overjoyed. The next day was the Sabbath. He turned up in the synagogue. At the time for the prayers of the people, he stood up and he shared with the gathered community that day his great and good fortune. Now at last a child had been born into their home. Isn't it fantastic? It hardly sat down, though. When his neighbor got up and said, God has indeed been gracious to our little community. I had twin sons born last night. Thanks be to God. And on hearing that, the farmer goes home in a totally different mood to the one in which he came. And instead of being joyful, once again, he's filled with the old cancer of jealousy. This time his envy didn't subside. And late that evening he filed his third request. And the request he filed was this Please gouge out one of my eyes. No sooner had he said the words, the angel appears to him, the one that initiated the whole process. Why, son of Abraham, have you turned to such vengeful desirings? And with rage the farmer replied, I can't stand to see my neighbor prosper. I'll gladly sacrifice half of my vision for the satisfaction of knowing he will never again be able to look at what he has. The words are followed by a long silence, and as the farmer looked, he sees tears in the face of the angel. Why, O son of Abraham, have you turned an occasion for blessing into a time of hurting? That third request will not be granted, not because the Lord lacks integrity, but because God is full of mercy. But know this, foolish one, you've brought sadness not only to your heart, but to the heart of God. The point is clear. Fable though it is, as long as we are focused on what the other person has that we don't have, 
we'll not be able to enjoy what God has given to us. We need to abandon the notion that we deserve what somebody else has been given. You'd expect that behavior from children. They've got a better toy than me. I want that toy. Why didn't I have that toy? I'm going to take that toy. You'd expect it from them, but not from adults and certainly not from the people of the Lord. May I suggest in closing a couple of practical ways to apply the parable in our lives? Grasp salvation. God's grace with both hands. Don't delay if you're not saved in getting right with God. Appreciate. Take a good long look at what God has given to you. Admire it. Eternal life. Pardon from sin and a peace that endures. Undeserved grace. And the list goes on and on and on. It's a catalog, a vast catalog, a blessing. Spend much time thinking about what you have compared with what you really deserve and battle against this old consumptive mentality of our day. Focus on what you have rather than on what you don't have. In other words, the hymn writer tells us, count your blessings. Celebrate. Learn how to give thanks with others on account of the mercies they have received rather than reigning on their period. A kind storekeeper once said to a little girl who was eyeing up in the day when you had jars lined of sweets on the shelves there. And he saw her eyeing them up, and uh, he said, take some. In fact, take a whole handful. The girl hesitated a moment, and then she said, will you please give it to me? Your hand is bigger than mine. When we begin to compare our lives with others, and compute rewards that we anticipate, we're going to be dissatisfied. We'll enter into the realm of this new mass, and it won't add up. We must let the hand of God reward us as He deems just and as He deems fair. Remember, His hand is always bigger than ours. Let's live for Him today then let Him reward us tomorrow. Life isn't always fair, but God is always good. And that truth, if we can focus on that, will determine whether our life is deprived or whether it is abundantly blessed.